Welcome back, people. It's the Fellas Podcast, and we are nearing the end of season three. Ah, oh, damn, man. Three years. Three years of this podcast. Don't and we, and we still, we're still together like a married couple. Ah, Isn't that nice? I, 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 by the way, I just want to say, I can't imagine a life without this podcast. I never want it to end. Wow. And the person, you get me emotional, yeah, bro. No, it's ma- just the beginning Mainly of for the monetization of yeah. the podcast. No, I feel that. <laughs> All right, look, guys, today we have got a very special guest with us. Um, this is uh, maybe maybe along the lines of more serious conversation. Yeah. I'd be surprised if it there's any special, wanking stories in this one. Brilliant. But I tell you how I know it's special. My dad is a massive fan of this man. Okay. Yes. So. Well, I'm a massive fan of this man because there was, there was a time where I was on Netflix and I simply could not escape this man. Um, but <laughs> oh, anyways, no, guys, no. look, it is none other than the wonderful Raphael Rong. Welcome, sir. I love it. That was a good intro. I hope it was one yeah, of the finer ones. Fan. Yeah, yeah, he is massive fan. So he's going to be sad. He t- when I told him while you were coming on the podcast, he was like, oh, wow. Yeah, let him know that I'm a fan. I was like, all right. No, you let me know. Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a good nice bloke. Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you for joining us today. Was, I'm excited for this episode. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's one of those cases because I've watched you uh, on the telly so much yeah. and now to see you in person. I'm real. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's then... It's strange to be... Like, you never thought I'd be here. You're watching the show, watching uh, your Netflix show and then it's like, wow, now we're all sat here having this conversation. And I can finally ask the questions that I have when because I'm watching it and I, I've always always got like definitely questions in the middle of episodes and now that you're here you can't escape mm. the questions and I'm so ready to hopefully so you are uh, i mean I, I actually you know what i think would be best is if you could just tell a little bit um about yourself because there's going to be a bunch of our viewers here that maybe haven't seen some of your stuff or read your book mm. or anything like that and i think it would be best just to hear it from you because i don't think we'd be able to do your story justice i know there is a it's a massive story but um if you could just give it to us in in a condensed piece, if that's at all possible. Condensed piece. But yeah. what, what, what you're talking about, for those who don't know me, I was um, wrongly arrested, charged and convicted of a murder back in 1988 when I was 20 years old. Um, and I was dubbed one of the M25-3 gang. I was wrongly convicted of a murder in a series of robberies and I was sentenced to life imprisonment with no parole alongside two other guys and it took me and I spent 12 years inside maximum security prisons here in the United Kingdom fighting my wrongful conviction because I was wrongly convicted and it took me 12 long years before the court of appeal finally recognized I was an innocent man and quashed my conviction and I was freed when I came out of prison after those 12 years of being inside some of the UK's toughest prisons I went on to become a journalist for the BBC, worked for the Today programme, Panorama, as an investigative journalist, spent a lot of time in my early career as an undercover journalist who grew a beard. I had dreadlocks at the time. I used to go undercover and expose criminality and corporate companies and and things like that. And when I left the BBC four years ago, I, um, I got this gig on Netflix where I go inside some of the world's toughest prisons, mm. and the series is called Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. 
Um, you think, you know, I mean, spent 12 years trying to get the fuck out of prison. What am I doing? Willingly going back into prison. But I did because I think what I do is really important. So in a nutshell, in a condensed form, that's me. 12 years in prison for a murder I didn't commit. Conviction quashed. Went on to become a very successful journalist. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's Some safe to say that your your story is slightly more, I guess, dramatic than mine anyways. Um, <laughs> but no, I'd, I'd love to just just briefly touch on... Um, the the story about you being wrongfully convicted because i think i mean for me anyways um and i know it's actually my my mom shares the exact same fear and i don't know whether it's something that she spoke about and now it's inherently been in my mind but the idea of being falsely convicted or wrongly convicted has got to be up there in like a top top two top three biggest fears of all time and it wasn't like you were being convicted for you know something small here this was this was this was pretty serious and um you know the sentence was was heavy as well so i would just for me i can imagine that the the feeling of when of when that um verdict comes through and you you know that you are innocent and that everybody else has got it wrong must be a pretty pretty horrifying feeling what was that like it it starts long before the conviction you know the arrest in the first place i mean i wasn't a a, 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 an angel by any means as a teenager you know i got in trouble with the law quite a lot um but nothing serious you know i say nothing serious violence as well as you know burglaries and things like that so i'd had my brushes with the law but when i was arrested and first interrogated and being accused of a murderer, I was quite cocky because I knew I didn't do it. And I thought, right, they've got this wrong, all's good. Yeah. But as the interrogation went on, and then the charge, and then being put inside Brixton Prison within a prison, so I was a sort of top security prisoner who was put inside a prison within a prison, not just any prison, but a prison inside a prison. And that's when it kind of dawns on you that you're in trouble, you know, at, at the serious level. So it starts really from the beginning, long before I went to trial, 18 months on remand, not convicted, waiting as the evidence started to, to materialise, you know, documentation, you start to read. I did in this cell where I was banged up for 23 hours a day, every day for 18 months, you know, only allowed out of my cell when two prison officers escorted me to go for a piss or shit because there's no toilets and stuff like that in the cells that I was kept in for many, many years. Um, but it's only when you start to read the documentation that you start to realise how bad the mistake is. Um, you, you know, being wrongly accused is one thing. Being wrongly accused of a crime you didn't commit is another thing. Being wrongly accused of a murder is, like you say, your your worst nightmare. But we all experience it in some way when we're accused of something. You get angry about it, don't you? And even on a small scale, when you took something out of the fridge and you said it wasn't me, but then you're accused by your parents who said it was you, or they believe it was you, but you know it wasn't. Even those little moments, you can get really angry. So, you know, you've got to multiply this by a million times, and it it, it is terrifying. But I will say this. When, when you find yourself in a situation that you have no control over, you develop a mechanism within yourself to cope there's no other way is there it's like any scenario you find yourself in and I found myself in a scenario where my whole mentality my whole persona changed to cope with being wrongly accused of murder yeah I mean I can I feel as though it's I mean, you, you mentioned there about being wrongly accused of like the smallest things and, you know, every memory. Yeah, I'm literally right now, I'm thinking of like all these little times that someone said I'd done something and, and I was, I was I, like genuinely annoyed well. that somebody had said that. And now, like I said, I just can't imagine what that, what that feeling was like. And w- when you first then 
began your sentence i guess what was were you there almost again still quite cocky at the fact that you 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 were confident at this point you would get get out because the the truth would prevail or did you almost like submit to to defeat that this was just you for the rest of your life defeat was never an option i suppose i shifted from this cocky 20 year old in a police station being accused of something and saying no gov it wasn't me you know i wasn't one of those no comment type suspects i was nope i was here i was doing this i was quite forthright if i remember you know when i was 20 saying it wasn't me and I think as I started to see the evidence in, in terms of the documentation, I started to see all the, the flaws and, and inconsistencies in the prosecution's case against me. That made me even more cocky, but more confident that at some point when I go to trial, a jury, 12 people who are supposed to be looking at this objectively would never convict me. And one element of my case, there was me. I had dreadlocked brown skin. Both of my co-defendants were black. The evidence clearly from the victims was that the perpetrators consisted of two white men and one black man, yet three black men were locked up in prison, accused and charged of these crimes. So when I saw that evidence, and I didn't know that until I started reading the documentation, even though it was a high-profile case, you know, front page of all the national newspapers in this country, news headlines on a daily basis, it wasn't until I see the doc- documentation, you know, the statements of the victims who described the perpetrators, not just one victim, but three victims at three separate crimes described the descriptions of the perpetrators that didn't fit me and my co-defendants. Now, remember, this is 1988. You think about just a couple of years ago, George Floyd, I'm dealing with it back in 1988, racist police, etc. So, you know, seeing that document, I, I, I never felt defeated. In fact, what happened is I became more angry, I became more bitter, I became more determined to stand up for myself. And that's the kind of persona that I took on that helped me survive in all those years that I was in prison. You know, this bitter, angry, young 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25-year-old, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30-year-old, 31, 32-year-old, all those years... In those numbers I've just described, I was an angry and bitter young man fighting for my freedom. Wow. And at what point, because it's 12 years, like, it's a massive portion mm. of your life. Like, all of my 20s. Exa- I didn't see daylight. I couldn't, all of my yeah. 20s. Wow. Like, that's insane. And at what point did you start seeing the tables slightly turning for your appeal? Like, at what point was it a few years before your release? Was it? Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, in, in the years that I was in prison, as I say, I was an angry and bitter man. So I, I came up against the authorities on a regular basis, spent a lot of time in isolation and segregation, being punished for resisting the regime that mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been held in, you know, i.e. I shouldn't have been in prison, therefore I'm not conforming to the regime, i.e. as a convicted man, you're supposed to do things that the system expects of you. You know, you go on anger management courses, you go on all sorts of courses, jump through all, all sorts of hoops, and I refuse to do any of that. And as a result, I'd get punished. So mm-hmm. I'd be fighting prison guards, I'd be fighting prisoners, I'd be fighting myself, you know, I'd be put in isolation, stripped, naked, bollock, beaten, black and blue by prison guards who, who, who I came up against. And that went on for years and years and years. And it was only in the, I'd say, 1999. I'd already had one appeal that was rejected. The court sent me back to prison to continue serving a life sentence. But it was in 1999, maybe just a couple of years before that, where journalists started to question the safety of my convictions. That's when the table turned, because newspapers were then writing stories Mm. saying, is this man innocent? Is his co-defendants innocent? And at that point, you know, the prison officers, the screws, would slip these newspapers under my door that showed that even journalists were questioning the safety of my convictions, because by now we had a big campaign going on 
outside the prison by people who supported me and my family in particular, but also campaigners. And they managed to get these kind of articles written questioning the safety of my um, convictions, you know, asking questions, you know, is this man white? You know, obvious I'm not. I've got dreadlocks, brown eyes. (laughs) The suspects (laughs) were white. So there were lots of questions. That was the turning point. Mm. That's when the the barbarity of of my imprisonment started to ease you know the confrontation with prison guards relaxed a little bit because now they were saying maybe he is innocent all these years he's been protesting and we've been denying him we now maybe believe what the journalists say so that was a turning point but it wasn't until 1999 when the european court of human rights declared that I'd been denied the right to a fair trial in the British courts unanimously. 21 judges said denied the right to a fair trial and they insisted that the British court system relook at my case. Mm. We had a huge campaign and then the Criminal Case Review Commission, the body that oversees looking at wrongful convictions, also supported that stance and said that my case needed to go back to the Court of Appeal. So it was in 1999 and then 2000 when I was released. That was the turning point. Wow. And and in terms of your your time actually in prison, mm. um, because, you know, I hear so many different side of things. Some people, yeah. they go to prison and they say it is literal hell. You know, the, that in the UK, it, it, is, it is awful. But then you also hear people going it's a piece of piss like there's you know you can there's playstations in there there's you know there's mobile phones all this stuff and i know obviously back back when you were there 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 weren't mobile phones and and things like that but just in terms of is is it really that bad or is it is it something that's been exaggerated i mean you mentioned there briefly about how you know the prison guards you would constantly get into it with them um so what side of the fence do you see on? Do you think that's changed over time? Do you think things are probably a little bit easier now? Or do you just think it really depends on the prison itself? It, it, it's a difficult one because I think prisons are different. You know, the prisons that I was held in were maximum security prisons. Right. I was an A-category prisoner, which meant that everywhere I went, everything I did, I was escorted by prison guards. You know, I was at the very top level for many years. That category decreased. In the local prisons, the Wormwood, Scrubs and and local prisons, Penterville, places like that, they are conveyor belts. So you have people coming in who are, you you, you know, desperate for drugs or whatever. So it can be a lot more violent than these maximum security prisons, even though they have probably the toughest of criminals, the most violent of criminals, murderers and all sorts of violent offenders. They're a lot calmer. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of violence that takes place. There's a lot of intimidation. There's a lot of threat. So I'm on the stance... I'm in the position that prisons are your worst nightmare. And it really depends on your character. It really depends on how you conduct yourself in Mm. prison. If you're vulnerable, you might be, I wouldn't say bullied, you know, because sometimes you can be protective. I was protective of people that were vulnerable. I didn't like to see bullies bullying people. One of my first fights in prison was with the biggest guy because he was a bully, you know, and I had to take a stance and came out of that with a, a good reputation. It helped me throughout the rest of my sentence. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that prisons, because they have PlayStations, because some prisoners smuggle phones in, because they have access to a television today, makes it any less easier. Because when you're confined in a nine by six space and there's no handle on the inside of a door that you can open and come out whenever you want, that squares your brain, right? You live in a space that is square and your brain becomes square and you lose the ability to have conversations. You know, you don't have conjugal visits in the UK, so you have no intimacy, you know, with with the opposite sex, if that's your preference. Um, 
So it's, it's many different things that can be psychologically torturous as well as physically torturous that will affect different people in a different way. Like you said, your worst nightmare is, you know, being accused and locked up for something you didn't do. Um, that can be so brain crushing, you, you, you know, and then it affects you physically. So for me, it depends. It depends on the persona and personality of the individual that's in, in prison. But I don't buy into this idea that prison's soft because when they go behind that door, when they're banged up behind that door, a lot of them cry like babies because they can't get out, especially when you're doing the kind of 30-year sentences that we hear young kids getting sentenced to today, even if they haven't used the knife or been involved in the violence themselves. Yeah. And when you're a maximum security prisoner like you were, do you have the opportunity to make many friends? Like, you out yourself that much? Or is it like, did you come out with any lifelong friends no. after your time? I didn't, actually, because I was quite militaristic. I was on a mission to prove my innocence. Mm. And prison changes, you know, the, the people that are in there have motives and their behaviours. So I didn't make friends. Of course, I, I knew, you, 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 you know, everyone and anyone but I never took size I never got into a clique I never got into a particular group which you find in prisons whether mm. it is the Muslim Brotherhood whether it is some other kind of group where they try to run the places I mix with everyone and anyone but I didn't make friends I made acquaintances people yeah. that you know you got on with you have a cup of coffee with you might you know have a conversation with play some cards with or something play football with or something but I never really made friends because motives in prison are not as sincere as they can be on on the outside yeah, yeah. and you know you're consumed by your own suffering i was anyway yeah. or they're consumed by their own guilt because they are guilty of the crime that they committed many guys do make good friends in in prison i just wasn't one of those and fair enough and i guess so when, when you're in there and you're and you're telling people like i'm innocent they must hear that all the time everybody's in there saying i didn't do it or you know they they must have heard that so many times did you just feel like you were just another one of them or maybe not taken seriously at all because everybody's claiming they're innocent and, and did people did anybody in there that weren't the the um the prison officers that had seen the the outside news did anyone in there actually believe you i think it took time you're, you're right everybody protests their innocence it might be that they committed the murder but they say they didn't do it the way that it was right. described or yeah. it wasn't they didn't mean to kill someone or they didn't mean to to do what they did but they did you know and they got caught and they're banged up and they're protesting and then they quietly go off and do their time I, I, I protested my innocence as loud as I possibly could. And people, because of my persona, because of my character, because of the way I conducted myself in prison, it was obvious to people that I was slightly different from the guilty man. You, you know, I would not accept anything and suffered as a consequence. You know, no perks, no privileges came in my direction. So um, there were a few prisoners and prison staff, even in those early years, that believed me simply because of the way I conducted myself. But the majority, it's kind of, yeah, well, we all yeah. say that. But to mm. be fair, those guys that are genuinely innocent maintain their innocence throughout. Those who protest for a little bit after two, three, five years, then succumb to their guilt mm. and start doing what they need to do. But those yeah. that are truly innocent, and I met many, um, do eventually, and I know lots of guys who do eventually get their convictions overturned. You know, there was a number of yep. guys that I was in with high-profile individuals whose cases and convictions were overturned, and I watched them walk out of the Court of Appeal on the 6 o'clock news in the prison association area on a few occasions, hoping and wishing one day that would be me, and it that, was, yeah. and there would have been guys 
I left behind who was sitting there saying, when's my turn? Well, that uh, must give you a bit of hope, though. You seeing that, that keeps it makes that you're with, yeah. and you're like, I know I'm innocent. My friend here, our acquaintances, yeah, he's finally getting And we getting had this kind of tacit agreement between us because, you know, most of the guys that I met that were genuinely innocent, that did get their convictions across. We kind of had this tacit agreement that when your turn came, your conviction was overturned, and you get on the news, you would mention somebody who you left behind, and that's what happened oh, in wow. my case, oh, and that's what wow. I did. So when I got out, I shouted about... Um, individuals that I believed were still innocent and still in prison, it gave them their little moment, you know, yeah. and that's what they did for me. So, yeah, you do get that little bit of hope seeing someone come out with yeah. a t shirt with your name in it or something. Oh, right. wow, that's But amazing. it was important. It was important. And the, the type of people that you, because you mentioned you were a category A prisoner mm. in there. So, you must have been rubbing shoulders with some of the most dangerous prisoners that, that, that are held in the UK. Is there, is there anybody that, sort of popped into your mind as like you you look to them like oh my you like you are just there is something severely wrong with you here was there was there like the most dangerous prisoner that pops to your mind or somebody that you were genuinely scared of being in the prison with I, I wouldn't say there was anybody in prison that i was scared of per se there were lots of dangerous individuals who would do you harm and and, and they ranged from range from you know, IRA terrorists whose ideology drove their behaviour and they didn't conform to the regime and they could be a threat to anybody. Um, you, you, you know, then there's the, the Charlie Bronsons of the world, you know, who is deemed to be the UK's longest serving prisoner, the most dangerous prisoner. But we were banged up next to each other in the segregation unit and we'd have a giggle and a laugh. And yeah, he was slightly mental wow. um, and, and disabled in that, that sense. And he's still in prison today from Reggie Cray, who was one of the Cray twins, who I became very good friends with, but the myth around him being the biggest gangster in the UK, the Cray twins. So there were those types of prisoners. And then there were the evil ones. There were the ones who had committed multiple murders or were serial rapists or serial killers who were dislodged in the mind. And you knew that, I, you know, I'll give you one example. I was in one prison in Gartree, and there was a guy banged up opposite me, you know, as close as you guys are to me, the corridors, banged up opposite me, and he killed a guy and put him under his bed. You, you know, he's already in prison for two murders. He kills someone in prison, puts him under his bed, and we're walking up and down the landings, not knowing that this guy had committed this murder. So, you know, it could have been me, it could have been anyone. I don't know why he killed the guy, no, no one ever well. finds out. But, you know, so you, 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 the, the threat is not always in your face. You, you, you know, it's just a threat that you're constantly aware of in these kind of prisons because a lot of the guys in there are serving very long sentences for very serious offences. Yeah, wow. that's, I mean, I can only imagine like the level of anxiety that yeah, would sort of surround you at all times. I mean, being on high alert. Um, Gotta be vigilant every yeah, day. Just constantly switched mm. on, I suppose. Um, and then obviously it came to the day that, I guess you found out, or maybe it was over a couple of days, like the process of going through, you mentioned you got the appeal. Um, I listened uh, on a podcast that then you get taken back down to London and you go through that um, and you sort of came out, saw your family right there. And I, I, I think at that moment, did were your family always in the belief that you were innocent? Because I can imagine that almost hurts more than anything else if, if, is the fact that, maybe the family don't your, your own family don't believe that you're innocent and you mentioned that you'd come out and your younger sister was almost like your i guess biggest fan or biggest supporter biggest advocate for your innocence um how was how was that dynamic 
I think in all the years that I was in prison, my family were very supportive. Three sisters who tried their utmost to make people aware of the fact that their young brother was in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And, and you know, their, their shouts fell on deaf ears. You know, sometimes they'd get some support. Sometimes some journalists would take an interest. Sometimes they'd do interviews on radio and TV if something dynamic was happening in the case. Um, but I think, you know, th their torment was probably worse than mine because they had to live with it on the outside and then they had to live with me on every visit asking for more help, putting them under a huge amount of pressure when they were unable to help me. They were unable to do anything legally yeah. to help me get my conviction overturned. So all they could offer was moral support, you know, and to promise me that they would go to the next big campaign meeting and try and mention my name or my case at that event where other campaigners were there. Um, but it was tormenting for, for them and for me uh, and painful. And we drifted apart, although my wrongful conviction and the campaign to free me kept us glued together on one mission, I grew up in prison, you know, at least those... 12 years I become a different man altogether they continued with their lives you know having children trying to build their relationships they still had this stigma circulating around their head like a cloud every day where their brother had been convicted of this notorious m25 murder etc that they had to live with all the time I think they dealt with it very well but yeah it was when my conviction was was quashed um, on the day that I walked out of the court of appeal and it was at that moment that I fell into the arms of my sister my youngest sister who's one year older than me but she is my youngest sister um, and all my bitter angerness kind of fell out of me as I cried my eyes out you know I didn't cry in all the years that I was in prison I couldn't even if I wanted to but at that moment it was as if the the, the bitter anger twisted me evaporated you know I wasn't going to allow the next 12 years of my life to be consumed by the 12 years that I just spent fighting for my freedom in in prison so they they were my rock if that's yeah. kind of description while I was in prison very supportive and I don't think there was ever a moment although they will never know no one will ever really know only those that committed the crime myself and you know the victims that we were innocent you know my sisters believed me they knew I didn't do it um, but they were not there when the crimes were committed no one was apart from those who perpetrated those crimes they knew we were innocent I believe the police knew we were innocent um, but it's really tough for families really tough so just quickly is it, are the people that actually committed this crime but did did they, did they no. not ever get found out no. just nothing no. nothing wow. wow that's uh yeah that, that's that's pretty crazy and um i i guess from there on it began did you see it as like now my life begins once you'd come out from there because you've gone on to do these amazing things that we'll get we'll, we'll talk about in a minute but did you because I, I guess it's very easy to like you said hold that like bitterness towards the system and almost be like fuck the system i'm gonna now go and make it hell for them mm. um, because that's a way the way that a lot of prisoners that come yeah. out that turn but quite clearly that wasn't the route that you took and uh, how do you then go into where you are now Ob obviously you weren't you, you were you didn't do what you'd claim to do or sorry that you've been accused of doing so how how do you make that transition into into what you've done now it wasn't by design. I, yeah. it, it, in the late years of my imprisonment, I embarked on a journalism course. And I only did that 
purely because I wanted journalists to write stories that I was innocent. Mm. So I needed to understand how journalism worked so that I could try and influence some of the stories where I could write letters to newspapers, national newspapers, or when I did interviews on television, I had some understanding of how journalism worked to get my voice heard. Um, so that provided me with a skill set, a, a minimal skill set while I was in prison. So I manipulated that to get journalists to write stories. But when I got out of prison, there was no design, there was no desire, there was no ambition to do anything. You know, I was free and I didn't know what was going to happen next. You, you know, it's not like you have this euphoria moment where everybody's celebrating, you know, bottles of champagne are popped. It lasts for two or three days, five days, and then people go back to work. And you're kind of left on your own again. It's like being in that cell by yourself again. And then you have to try and find your way. For me, I was very fortunate that a lot of the journalists that I met during the years that I was in prison, at least in the last few years, who wrote stories or broadcast stories about my case. You know, documentaries were made on ITV, on the BBC and various other platforms and newspapers. So I reached out to some of those journalists and sort of... Um, got a tour of the BBC. Basically, this is how my career started. You know, I met up with a guy who worked for Radio 5 Live at the old TV centre in White City. He gave me a tour of the BBC centre and we went out the back of the studio for a cigarette and the then editor of the BBC Radio 4 programme, a guy called Rod Liddell was outside there. We got into a conversation and he offered me a job bang just like that no interview oh, no nothing that's pretty cool yeah offered me a job. i was verbal you know and i was you know you've got to remember when i come out of prison i spoke with a serious prison slang you know i don't speak <laughs> okay. didn't speak anything like i do today you know prison slang southeast london and i couldn't articulate myself very well although you know when i met that guy he offered me a job there and then and that changed the trajectory of my life i had no desire or ambition to become a journalist or to work in that space at all I didn't know what I was going to do but it was in that moment that that guy gave me an opportunity and it changed the trajectory of my life forever and he must have seen something in that moment in me that he felt I mean there was a little bit of maverick about this guy here's this brown guy with dreadlocks out of prison yeah. who rubbed shoulders with the craze the Kenny noise you know the Goldfinger Palmers all these kind of notorious criminals that we knew of and he saw an opportunity to get me to access them to do stories, which everybody was into true crime. So he had a motive, but I didn't care. And initially, was it, because obviously a lot of the work you do now is all on camera, uh, was it initially straight away that, or was it more like writing-based journalism? At the no, it was, it was radio. I literally, you, you know, when I went to prison, mobile, mobile phones didn't exist. I came out and I'm handed a mobile phone for the first time. Oh, oh wow, happened. yeah. What was that like? Were you just there like, crazy. what the you, fuck I, have I spawned I, into here? I, I walked down the court of appeal steps. I waved my fist and did what we did. You know, I was innocent. I've been in prison all these years and I get in the back of a taxi with my sister. And now you've got to remember in prison, I didn't move any faster than my feet could take me, right? So we're talking running around the exercise yard, you know, 10, 15 miles yeah. an hour, if top speed, I don't know why. <laughs> top, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm in the back of a taxi. The taxi's going at 25 miles an hour, and I'm kind of disorientated because I'm just not used to moving that far. I'm not used to seeing, you know, in the distance because brick walls in prison restrict your vision. You can mm. only see the blue sky, which is our hope. So when you're out and you've got this open space, it can be very disorientating. So I'm in the back of this taxi and my sister hands me a mobile phone. You know, when I was in prison, mobile phones were too big to get smuggled in. Now they've got them like that. They put them up their ass and they take them in. But when I was in prison, they were big bricks like that. 
She hands me the mobile phone in the back of the taxi. I didn't know what to do with it. I really did. I knew how to use a phone because they had handheld phones in prison and you dip, 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 dip. These mobile phones, I really didn't know what to do with it. It might sound stupid, but that was the reality. And they giggled at me and laughed at me and told me what to do with the mobile phone. And that's indicative of all the things that I then rediscovered yeah. in those 12 years. You know, technology had moved on, emails, the internet, Google and all that. So when I first joined the radio station, the, the Today programme, which is the most prestigious radio programme in the country, um, you know, movers and shakers, the Prime Minister down, come onto that platform. I was given a mini disc and a microphone to go and record interviews with people, and I didn't know how to use this equipment. I bluffed it and pretended that I did, yeah. and then did all the kind of stuff. That's kind of like our producer, to be fair. I just wigged it and just did it as I went along and discovered. I made some serious mistakes, and one of the biggest mistakes, I went to interview a copper called Nipper Reed. Nipper Reed was responsible for the arrest of the Cray twins. You know, that's right. where he got his reputation yeah. from. And I met Reggie Cray in prison, and one of the first stories that editor of that program wanted me to do was to find out if Ronnie's bro Reggie's brother, Ronnie Cray, had actually killed Reggie's wife, um, which was one of the stories. Um, so I went in search of, of this copper who arrested Reggie, and I did an interview with him on this mini disc, this kind of little device that records things, and did the interview, and then I tried to edit it on my way back to the studio and deleted the whole fucking lot. That's <laughs> oh, how wow. naive I was. But it was a lesson learned. You know, yeah. technology yeah. from that moment on has become my kind of bugbear, and I'm really good with it. So lessons learned. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's, was it a good interview? Were you kind of gutted <laughs> as well? Interview. He was lucky because I called him up on the phone, and he did the interview over the phone. So oh, God. Just it. say what you said earlier, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. sorry, mate. I've just deleted the whole but, thing. But, but you know what? It was a lesson for me, and it's a lesson for anybody. Yeah. You, you, you know, don't pretend you know something that you don't know learn it you know yeah. discover it and that's been my philosophy ever since are the yeah. craze still alive sorry are the craze still alive no both the craze are dead yeah. reggie died a few years ago actually he was still in prison he was never yeah. released he died in a hospital outside of prison i, I was wow. at his funeral and, and stuff like that he was the you know whatever your view is of the cray twins reggie you know i was banged up with him for three or four years we got to know each other really well you know he, he used to come in my cell and um, he, he, you know, he was gay, just like his brother Ronnie, but he hid that reality. And he, he had a relationship with a guy called Bradley, who was another prisoner. And um, that was the story I was after. So I was going to interview Bradley to find out whether Reggie had ever confessed to Bradley about, because they were really in love. Bradley was yeah. only in his 20s and Reggie was in his 60s, but they had this relationship going on. Um, but Reggie, in his last book... He wrote in his book that I was the only... Now, he'd been in prison 30-odd years. And in his last book, he wrote in his last book that I was one of the only men that he'd ever met in prison that he believed was innocent. So going back to your question about whether people do or don't believe, you know, when you have someone like Reggie Cray, who's been in prison 30 years and heard it all, seen it all from everybody, to <laughs> write a testimony like that, that because of the way I conducted myself, as I said, he wrote in his book that I was one of the only people he'd ever met in prison that he truly believed was innocent. That's, it was wrong. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. That's pretty, that's pretty, like I said, if you're going to get it from anyone, I think getting it from him is probably a well, pretty Not everybody thing. would agree with no, that given yeah, his reputation. Yeah. Right, that's fair. It means something to yeah. prisoners who have done a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and then I guess from that radio, obviously, things went on and uh, and developed and then i guess you got uh, uh, the knock from from netflix or did you did you go to them and you were there like i'd love to do this or how did that start because um i think for for me and i know a lot of people in our office as well 
they've all at least seen a couple episodes you know you're scrolling through netflix you're like what should we watch and then you can't help but click and watch it because it's fascinating so so how, how did that how did that start did did you come up with that idea did they come to you how does how does that well i mean in in the years that i worked at the bbc so i went from the today program to yep. the six o'clock news as a special investigator and then there was the launch the original launch of bbc three and i was their sort of lead investigative journalist you know did a lot of undercover stuff um, and then i went on to work for panorama you know this prestigious yep. primetime television program and then after eight years at Panorama of doing that kind of dogged seasoned journalist stuff, I mean, I really did pound the pavements, knock doors and do some really deep down investigation. It was a transfer of my skills, you know, being in a prison cell, meticulously researching my own miscarriage of justice gave me the skills to research meticulously. So I used those skills in the years I worked at the BBC. And then I was at Panorama and then in 2017 2018 there was a big shake-up at the bbc you had the saville case you had some high profile embarrassing cases for the bbc and so they were shaking up the kind of journalism that i did and i no longer wanted to be there so it was literally me leaving the bbc and as i kind of walked out the door scratching my head thinking what am i going to do next netflix came knocking they had already started inside the world's toughest prisons on channel five and another guy presented that. Netflix bought the series from Channel 5, but they didn't want that presenter. They wanted a new presenter. And it just so happened that I'd left the BBC. They were aware of who I was. And so they came knocking and asked me if I would present this show and would be the host of this show. Initially, I wasn't going to do it because I didn't want to do a show that just sensationalized prison and mm -hmm. just went in there and looked for violence and drugs and the typical stuff that you yeah. ask, is it really like this or not? So I kind of negotiated with them that they've got to let me do it my way. They've got to let me go in there without judgment and just discover what it's like. And I, I managed to get that over the line and I've been doing it for years now. Nice. So you do get a bit of creative control over the series yourself. I wouldn't do it otherwise. I mean, I went from the moment from it, 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 for anyone who's watched that series, you know, from the moment I get in the back of a police van, which is where it all starts, you know, they kind of almost arrest me off camera, put yep. me in the back of a police yeah. van or whatever means they've got to get me to prison. I've been in the back of trucks. I've been in police cars. I've been in, you know, prison vans. From that moment on, I take on the persona as a, as a prisoner and everybody knows. So I don't meet anybody beforehand. My team do just ahead of me getting to the prison just to lay the land and make sure that we can get through things. Um, but from the moment I get on the back of the police van and I get off that van, I'm treated like a, a prisoner, yeah. you yeah. know, and that's the rule. Treat me like a prisoner, treat me you know, within reason, you know, don't beat the fuck out of me the moment <laughs> I walk off the van. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> or something, you know, so well, there's got to be some, some kind of control. But yeah, no, it, it really is as, it, as you see it. And, and w when you go in there, um, are you spending the night at these places like how how you, you mentioned you, you know you're you're living it like a, like a prisoner would there how far does that go there are some places where because for for, for insurance reasons right. and for security reasons they can't so here's an example i was in colombia don't know if anyone's seen the colombia episode if you haven't you should I'm in Colombia, and the, 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 the first guy that I meet whose cell I'm going in, so I carried my stuff into the cell, and immediately he sort of says, I have to pay him $200 to stay in the cell. And I'm like, I ain't got $200. And he's, he's a drug... Sorry, is this on camera as well? This is on camera. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he threatens me for $200, and his cellmate is a Sicario, which is a Colombian hitman who's killed lots of people. That's his job, to kill people for the Colombian cartel. 
and these two guys confront me and tell me that I've got to pay them money or I'm not going to survive in the cell. So that night, um, during the day when I'm out there, I'm terrified, I'm scared because I know that night I've got to get banged up with these guys. And I'm scared, genuinely scared. And I don't pretend that I'm scared on camera. If I'm scared, it's because I'm scared. You know, I've done it for real, so I don't show any fear unless I'm genuinely scared. And I was scared, but this was all internal. It was me kind of like... That night, we go behind the door, and they shut the door. And so it's just the three of us, and I've got my camera. And then they start rolling spliffs and putting cocaine in it and weed, and their personality changes. You can see their personality changes. Now, the conditions is this. If I'm going to be in the cell overnight, they've got to provide two things. One is a prison officer has to be outside the cell door to open the door to let me out if my life becomes threatened, if my life's in danger. And secondly, they have to agree to have keys inside the prison so that they can open the door. Because in most prisons at night, the keys leave the prison in case there's a mass escape. So they can't have keys inside the prison. I didn't know that. So on this occasion, the Colombians agree to it. And I'm banged up with these guys and I'm kind of, and they start smoking this weed and that, and then they start to become very menacing. And they'd already threatened me earlier in the day. So in those scenarios, I will not stay. They will open the door and they will take me out in that environment. A similar thing happened in um, Lesotho where these guys threatened to rape me. They said I had to be a wife or take a wife in this episode. And I was genuinely scared because... There are some people you can't read, right? I mean, I've been in prison of every type of guy you can imagine. The good guy, the bad guy, the fat guy, the skinny guy, the vulnerable guy, the dangerous guy, the menacing guy, you name it. I've come face to face with those individuals and have a good reading of those characters. But in this Lesotho episode, when these guys kind of surrounded me and started telling me that I had to either fuck one of the guys in the cell or be fucked by one of these guys it was really really intimidating and i'm trying to put on a brave face and i lay down now ready to bed down for the night and then they kind of like slowly come towards me and their faces change it was really scary and i genuinely got up to run out of the door i was that scared but the door's fucking closed i can't get out i can't get out of the cell and then they started laughing but my heart was pounding i was terrified and moments like that is when you want to make sure they've got keys outside that door to let me out when yeah. I'm staying in there. You and, know? and how would you signal that to the producers or the guard? Like, what's the? Are they watching closely to make sure, or is it you that? Has no, to let them no, know? they they become complacent. In, in fact, in that Lesotho episode, the guard that was, we don't have any security, so we don't have any prison officers. We have one guy chaperoning us who has keys, so he can let us in and out of gates and doors and stuff mm-hmm. like that because you can't open them yourself. So um, the one guy in this Lesotho cell was asleep in the corner. You know, he was literally, (sighs) as we were shooting. Obviously, I have, so I have no security. So the team that goes in is me and two camera people. Yep. And then I will have, if possible, a sound man who speaks the lingo of the country that I'm in, if it's a foreign language. um, And he doubles up as a a, um, translator. Okay. So it's just the three of us. So if anything kicks off now, you've got to remember, when these guys are looking through the lens, they've got one eye closed and they're looking through the lens. So they can't see anything that's going on. (laughs) They're just trying to get that good shot. They're just trying to get that good (laughs) shot. So at the moment I'm running to the door, they don't know what the fuck's going on. If I've gone and they're like, where's he gone? They're looking for me like that. And then they find me. and their life is in danger just as much as mine. Of course, in, yeah. in Paraguay, we got attacked um, where we were. I was interviewing one guy. He's dead now. He killed himself. But I was with this guy. We were playing pool together. All of a sudden, snooker balls were being thrown at us. One snooker ball, the, the guy was holding the camera, and the snooker ball hit the camera. If it hit his head, it would have blast 
his head open, you know. So we have been in scenarios where it's extremely dangerous and it turns at the flick of a, you know, finger twitch or, or yeah. whatever. It can be very menacing and scary. Wow. And what are these, what are the other prisoners told when you come in with uh, a team, stuff like that? Are they made aware of... They're, they're not. Situation. They're told that we're making a documentary. Yeah. Sometimes they don't understand whether I'm a real prisoner coming in who's being filmed, or I am part of the documentary team. So it depends on their level of of understanding of what's been explained. Yeah. They are explained from the get go by the prison staff that a TV crew are coming in. Some of them don't even know what Netflix is. They've been in prison so long. Yeah. Netflix didn't exist when they were of in. Of course. Netflix. Yeah. Don't you don't even think about it like don't, that. Don't yeah. even know about. Yeah. It, so it can be. So they don't know. There are times where they don't know that I've been to prison. Yeah. During our conversation, it kind of penny drops. So they think this guy is asking questions. That means he knows a little bit too much about prison. You know, yeah. little things that you guys wouldn't know because you've not sat in a prison cell on your own for hours and hours and hours and overcome the, the threats of prison. So it, it gives me a, a, an edge, if yeah. you like, which helps me, I wouldn't say manipulate, but build the trust of the prisoners that when I'm there. To... Wow. And... I imagine this is highly unlikely, but I always wonder when I'm watching that like, sometimes is there ever going to be a time where you go into this prison and somebody is just going to be like, that's Raphael Rowe. That's happened. It has happened. Quite, quite recently, actually. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, no. Getting so, recognised in prison. That's pretty... So I suppose because the series has been going on for quite a few years yeah. now, the new prisoners who are familiar with yeah. it and the prison staff, you know, it's almost like a welcome committee in some places, <laughs> which, which has its advantages and disadvantages. And the advantages are it's a lot easier for me to build their trust because they've seen episodes that I've done previously. They know I'm not there just to knock them or to, mm -hmm. you, you, you know, judge them in any way. But equally, it becomes, for me, more dangerous, and especially for my crew, because, you know, you just don't know if someone wants their 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. You know, it might be that they know what Netflix is about. They're going to be in prison for 30 years. They've got nothing to lose, and it puts our lives in a little bit more danger. So where I've always had eyes at the back of my head, I've got them on the side and all over me now trying to steer you know, because I don't go in with the same team. Lots of the people that I go in and film this stuff with have never been inside a prison before, yet they're going inside some of these most wow. vulnerable, dangerous oh, places. So, you, so it's not the same cameraman at all no. times? No. Have, 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 you ever, have you ever come out of a prison and, uh, you know, you, you like you said, you build this trust and you get to know a, a, a number of these prisoners and in, in all the different ones that you go to. Have you ever come out of somewhere and really believed that or you've made like a, a, a special attachment or an emotional connection with one of them that you, that you, you either believe that they might be innocent because they come and they tell you I'm innocent. Have you ever had a feeling there that they, they genuinely might be, or you've walked away feeling uneasy that they are still locked up and this person actually might be completely safe to reintegrate back into society. Those type of feelings, I can imagine it's, it's probably quite easy to be susceptible to that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, and I, I've met them all in, in different guises, you know. I've met the guys that have protested their innocence that I genuinely believe are innocent yeah. or people that have been in prison four or five years, they haven't been convicted, and even if they are convicted, they're probably only served three years, they've done two more years, that's unfair. I, I, I've equally met serial killers who, and interviewed serial killers who, if they were ever released they would go on to kill again, you, you, yeah. you, you know, but they don't see themselves as bad people. They see they, they've always got a reason or an excuse for the murders that they committed. And you scratch your head and think, what the fuck, you know, sexual offenders, you know, they just don't understand in some of these places that what they've done is wrong. You know, that the sexual offenses that they committed within their environments and communities is wrong. So I've met all types of guys. Um, you know, I come out 
of each episode and kind of drop my shoulders and think that was depressing for different reasons. It might be the conditions. It might be because of the individuals. What I'm mostly surprised by is the audience's reaction. So um, in the last season in Moldova, I met these two guys and I was in their cells and um, it's a very depressing place because these guys are never, ever going to be released. If you commit murder in Moldova, you go to prison for life. So all the guys I met are never, ever, ever going to see daylight, but they're trying to fight that through the courts. And I met this guy called Lilian and, and his cellmate. Didn't know what they were in for. I was their cellmate. I knew that they were murderers, but I didn't know the murders they committed. Long story short, we're cooking, we're laughing, we're singing. I'm trying to sing in Moldovian and having fun with these guys. And then the moment comes, as it always does in these shows, where I find out a little bit more about these characters. So Lillian's in there for the murder of a police officer, although he says he didn't pull the trigger that killed the cop. And the other guy's in there for a double murder. He killed an elderly lady and a young woman. And I had to take a breath, you know, I had to get out of the cell because I was really shocked by the crimes that they committed and the, the gravity of the, the double murderer. Um, but the audience's reaction to those individuals has blown me away. There has been more sympathy for those individuals than there has been for many other individuals that I met. And I, I don't understand why. Well, I do, because people tell me that these guys who depend on their elderly parents to provide them with food who may die soon may not be able to provide them with food anymore so people want to send them parcels they want to send them money they want to do stuff and and it it blows me blows me away but what i will say is having come out of a lot of these prisons i i am left with this feeling that more could be done to improve the humanity and the treatment of these individuals because not all of them are murderers not all it could be one of you two guys who you know, after this interview, you go down the street and somebody attacks you and you try and help him and you knock the guy down and you're in prison for manslaughter. Yeah. You're not a bad guy. You're not a murderer. You, you didn't mean to. You were just protecting your friend. So there were lots of those kind of guys in there. Um, and that drove me to set up a foundation. So as a result of the work that I've been doing on Netflix, I've started a foundation to try and improve the conditions and the humanity and the resources in many of these prisons. There was a moment in your Solomon Islands episode where you met a bloke that killed his 11-year-old son and it looked like you were taken aback by that. Um, What was your kind of experience having someone in front of you who has killed their literal child? I I, I get into the space of these individuals and I know that they're murderers, right? I know that they've done something serious, but I don't know what it is. So when you're standing there, when I'm standing there talking to this guy and in this particular scenario in the Solomon Islands. We're in the kitchen packing food for the rest of the prisoners, talking to this guy who's got a responsibility, you know, he's got a responsible job in the prison. We're talking, and then all of a sudden he tells me, I ask him what he's in for, he tells me he killed his 10-year-old son, his own 10-year-old son. And it just gets worse, you know. Yeah, I'm taken back. I'm like, fuck, you killed your own son. Why? Because he stole a watermelon. Ah. He killed his 10-year-old son because he stole a watermelon. How did he kill him? He beat him to death with a stick, you know, and it's like me asking the question, you know, surely there comes a point where when you're hitting your son, you realize that he is lifeless or in so much agony and pain that you have to stop. But he beat him to death with a stick and and goes to prison for, for life. And I meet lots of characters where when they tell me the crimes that they've committed, I'm just... You, you know, saddened, surprised, shocked, disgusted, and I react like you would when you meet someone as you just did. Oh my god, ten-year-old son! Yeah. yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to, you know, 
computerize, you know, after I've got to come out of there and I have my own mechanisms to wash away all of those stories that I've heard and all those depressing, murderous kind of activities and actions by people who were once children who grown to yeah. young men and become adults and murderers. It's, it's, it's scary. Was there a particular prison that you went to and you were just gobsmacked at either the state of it, the condition of it, or ju just one that really sits in your mind and you're there like, this, this to me is, is truly the worst of the worst. Yeah. In, in, in terms of just like the condition of it, what goes on in it, is there one that really sticks out to you? I, I'd say there's, there's two, and both are in South America. One was in Brazil and the other one was in Paraguay for two different reasons. In, in Brazil, it's because the men that I were meeting are part of a gang culture, the PCC and the Red Command. So they control the drugs in the country, they control the prisons, they control the drugs. And these individuals that I, were meet, I was meeting were not only in prison, but whilst they've been in prison, they've committed acts so barbaric it, it's hard to comprehend and, and and by that i mean they chop the heads off of other prisoners and play football with their heads and it, it means nothing to them and the conditions in that place are so barbaric it's it, you just cannot do anything to improve it you cannot do anything to get into the mindsets of these individuals how does a man and i've seen it with my own eyes where they chop the heads off of rival gang members kick them about and do things to their dead bodies. And I've seen them cut arms off, legs off and everything, barbaric. And then I'm standing in front of those guys, talking to them like I am you. And the things that they've seen and the things that they've done are just hard to comprehend. Equally in Paraguay, they do a similar thing. You know, they follow the Brazilian gang culture because it's, it's overlapped there. But the conditions in Paraguay are just mind-boggling. And it beggars belief how... Hundreds and hundreds of prisoners are sleeping outside. They're allowed to have knives. They're allowed to have knives by the authorities. They're allowed to have drugs, which they smoke openly in front of the guards. Because if the authorities try to stop them, a riot kicks off, you know. So I met the, the, the equivalent to Pablo Escobar in Paraguay prison, for example. So he's in there, the main drug dealer. And on one occasion, they shipped him from the prison and as soon as they shipped him from the prison, the drug flow stopped. And so all the prisoners kicked off and started killing each other. So the governor had to bring him back to the prison so he could continue wow. to sell drugs in the prison. It's, it's just, but the conditions in that place, it's like a, a small ecosystem where they build their own cells, they build their own communities, they open their own little shops and things like that inside the prison. It's, it's, it's bizarre, it really is. There's there's always uh, like stories that come out and it, it, off the top of my head, it, it always tends to be around like South America and things like that, where you actually find that the prisoners sort of run the prison in the sense that, you know, the, there's a story of like Escobar and all mm. those guys, they, they just ran the prison as, as they, as they wished and as they pleased. And is that, is that something that you notice is particularly prevalent in places in south america because then i look at the ones in maybe like southeast uh, southeast asia those places and it seems very 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 tight and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do um and it just seems like almost two polar opposites is that a fair comparison you're, to make, you're, you're spot on and, and and you're right it's it's mainly in south america in costa rica i saw it in paraguay i saw it in brazil 
it, it, it's strange, though, isn't it? Because even though the prisoners have total control of the prison or other prisoners and even the staff who are so corruptible, you, you, you know, um, you wonder why they're still in prison. Why yeah. these guys don't just get them to open the gate and walk out? <laughs> there is this bizarreness about it because they are so powerful, these individuals. When I went to Paraguay, for example, the only reason I survived that prison was because I met that Pablo Escobar who gave me safe passage. You know, it took me days. And when I met him, he had this entourage as a big guy. It was, it was just such a bizarre strange meeting with this guy inside prison but it was me kind of negotiating with him that I'm a good guy and and what I'm here to do is just reflect the conditions and what people have to say as opposed to to judge them and I had to do that in Costa Rica I had to do that in Brazil where you meet the head honcho the the guy at the top of the hierarchy who gives you safe passage so if I've met them and had a conversation with them and they don't want to kill me no one else is allowed to kill me I, I, I sort of exaggerate but it's it's true whereas in Bali for example in season seven the guards are in total control, yeah. you know, as they are in, in the African prisons. Although the African prisons that I've been to in South Africa, in Lesotho, are, you know, the conditions are terrible, um, really, really bad. Um, the guards still have control of those places. The prisoners are terrified of them because they have a license to beat and kill those prisoners if they want to. And they do, you, you, you know, that's, that's how strange it is. Whereas in Bali, for example, um, you know, the prison guards do a lot to try and it's a cultural thing you know they do a lot to try and rehabilitate the prisoners whereas in all these other places there isn't no such thing as rehabilitation or, or or redemption or anything like that they're just housed kept until they're released back into society back into the culture that they came from yeah and uh, the, the bali one was really interesting to me it's a massive you know it, it's a place where so many tourists go you know people will go over there for three four months at a time and they're maybe coming from let's just use the united kingdom as an example where you know people smoke weed while it's not legal you know it's it's sort of just like yeah all right fine it, it, it it's not a big deal over here but then you go over to a place like bali and i believe in in the episode that you were you were there someone was in there for I'm, i might get this slightly wrong but something like 12 years for for having a little bit of weed a little bit of weed on him mm. and 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 uh, i think it's obviously to me i'm just saying like that is so unfair like you know what is that about but at the end of the day that's the laws that are in bali and the first thing that comes to my mind is i wonder how many people from abroad go over there maybe they get offered it maybe all, all this type of thing and they just go yeah fine whatever and and they do it not realizing the severity that that drugs you know a drug offense is in a place like bali um but at the same time with all that happening i didn't really see that many tourists locked up and i can only imagine that they are using drugs out there you know i went out to bali and it is out there. You went out to Bali and did some drugs. No, no, no. <laughs> little, little confession. No, 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 no. I want to go back to Bali. Uh, you're telling us you're back as well. <laughs> Round two. But, but it, it, do you think? Um, it, my point was, do you think tourists are treated differently to? I think there's, a, I mean, in, in Bali, for example, and you find this in a couple of other places, they have a zero drug policy um, and yeah. people in, in the Philippines as, as, as well. And people end up going to prison, like you say, for a little bag of weed that in this country, the police probably take it off you in America or, or, or you know, Spain. You can buy it out of shops, can't you? So the, 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 the cultures are very different. But yeah, this guy you, you mentioned yeah. was doing eight years 
for a little bit of weed, you know, separated from his wife and kid and and all of that. He knew the the law, but took the risk. There was um, a couple of um, foreigners in those places who, um, you you know, I think one was from America I met, one was from the UK. They didn't come on camera. But, yeah, they were naive to it, but they took the risk. They knew, at least the guys that I met, they knew the risk they were taking the moment they indulged in taking some drugs, and if they get caught, they'd end up going to prison. But I think you're right. I think the the, the laws in those countries are a little bit more lenient on Westerners or outsiders simply – the reason that you say they are not familiar with the laws whereas they come down hard on their own you know yeah. like they did with the guys that i met in the bali episode yeah well and so like let's say yeah example british guy gets locked up in bali given a massive sentence yeah they're not being too lenient on him over there is there anything back in the uk that can happen that they can do to fight for one of their citizens I think they, they not bother. They can go to their consulate, I suppose, and they can be rep- repatriated. So it might be if you end up getting, let's say, five years in Bali, ten years in Bali for a, you know a couple of joints. Whereas in this country, you'd only get a caution. Yeah. They could be repatriated to the UK and wouldn't end up going in prison. They would just get the same prison um, or, or the same you know conviction as you would. I think that's how it right. works. Okay. But, okay. But there has to be an agreement between the two countries. I yeah. This, and it might not happen. It might not happen. Wow. That's that. Yeah. That's a scary. That's a scary thought. Imagine just going over there for it's a bit be of careful. fun. And then, yeah. Country, I mean, people you, are eh? naive to it. You know, yeah. you, people will go over there and think, "Oh, I'll just have a joint tonight," and then before they know it, they're banged up in a cell for five years. Think, yeah. What the fuck. Yeah. Um, with with the one in the um, the prison in Bali. How did you, how did you find, because they almost seemed very respectful. Did you notice like real prison culture, like the, just the difference in terms of how respectful certain prisoners are? Like there was in that one in Bali, they almost were just there like, I get it. I know what I did was wrong and I'm here to respect the prison system. There's a fear going on as well. I, um, there was one guy in there called Bono who, who's out now, who I recently interviewed for, for my own podcast. And um, I, I, I kind of interrogated that question. When I was there, everybody was respectful. Everybody yeah. conformed to the regime. But that's because they're terrified of segregation. They're terrified of this space that they go for punishment if they cross a line or misbehave. Um, and as they all described it, you go in there. And I asked him, since he got out of prison, a little bit more about the segregation space. And he said to me that you go into a small cell, which is three by three. It's pitch black, no windows. You are stripped bollock naked, it's freezing cold, and you're kept in there for up to three months. I mean, how do you Jesus get... Christ. And that's what the punishment is. That's why they come... Yeah, that's... It's not yeah, because they want to be rehabilitated. Yeah. It's because they're terrified. They wouldn't let me in there. If you remember in that particular episode, yeah. I asked the senior guy if I could go in and see the segregation block that he said no one was in. But that's why, because it's, it's probably one of the darkest, frightening places that keeps these guys in line. And you don't have that in many of the other prisons where there is a lot of disruption. Do you think, do you think because of when you come in with cameras, people naturally, they, they don't want to upset the, the prison authorities because I can imagine that if they maybe say something that they shouldn't, that makes the actual prison look bad or maybe the government look bad, they might be sentenced to, you know. Say, I, I don't put, think, I, I, do you I, think I, they change the way they are a little bit? I don't because think so. I th- I'm, I'm sure ahead of us going in there, the authorities, they have to do one or two things. They have to notify the prisoners that there's going to be cameras. And right. that if you don't want to be seen on camera at any point, 
you know, we have a responsibility as well not to identify people that don't want to be on camera. They can disappear into the background. Those that do appear on camera, you know, it's a criteria for me that they speak openly and freely about their conditions. Of course, one or two of them are going to be a little bit cagey about what they share, but they really don't sometimes even realise that when we're talking that this will then appear on a broadcast, the light Netflix, a little yeah. bit down the line. Um, I, I, I don't think that they are controlled by the authorities. I don't. I, I, I know they're not because, you know, what you see in that hour episode is only an hour of me being in there for seven days and I learn a lot and I get past all the bullshit and all the the rubbish and I get to the stuff that I think is most important and um, working with the authorities to some extent but mainly with with the prisoners so there is no kind of wall being pulled over our eyes but again you know there will be certain prisoners like they don't identify the prisoners they we don't allow the guards to sort of say these are the six guys that you're going to meet and speak to in oh some, really no no okay it doesn't work like that it's all very organic my team my production team um my director my main camera person will go in a few days ahead of me and try and meet a few people just to get some characters that we know we can go to immediately yeah. Yeah. But then it's all organic. If I'm coming in your direction, but then see a guy over there and I think he looks like an interesting character, I'll go and speak to him. And then off camera is where I do my my greatest work, if you like, where I sit down with guys and and, and pick bogeys and, and have conversations and then think, yeah, let's get him on, on camera. And I've done that in, in every episode, you know. So we're not handpicked, the people. We're not told where we can go and where we can't go, obviously for security reasons. They won't let me sometimes in the segregation block because they say it's a controlled environment or they want to hide the punishment that they inflict or the mm, bat yeah. battered inmates in there and the yeah. and stuff. So there are things that we can't get past, but we only agree, you know, and it takes a long time to negotiate with the governments and the prisons to go into these prisons. And, and the biggest condition from my point is that they cannot restrict what we do, where we go and who we speak to. That's, you know, a given. And, and that's exactly what I, I do. That, that that's really good to hear because i think with the way a lot of television is nowadays it, a lot of it does feel very manufactured yeah, and no authenticity there's, there's a real lack of that right now and so to to hear that as well on on such a well polished and show is um I think really adds just to the uh, to the to the effect. Yeah, and the, there is a format. Obviously, anyone that's watching will know. I come off of the van as we talked about yep. earlier, so that's part of the formula and the process of going in, being strip searched and whatever. If they strip search, you know, the only thing I won't allow them to do is put their hands up my arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or you know, do any kind of deep cavity searches. Yeah. You, you know, that's kind of invade. And I've been through <laughs> yeah. that in real life, so I'm not. You don't need, you don't need that again. Yeah. So, so there are restrictions, you know. But from that process going to the cells, it's almost as organic as we can have it that allows the cameras to capture it as as well you know sometimes the process you might be held in a holding space for two weeks before you go into the main population we haven't got two weeks so right. we, we, we we sort of negotiate with the guards that we do that in an hour yeah spend an hour there so we can just keep moving along the process that's about as much manufacturing as we do so we can't go through the process that prisoners go through in terms of time scout but otherwise it, it is as as you see it it and really is. Is there somewhere, like I imagine you're going through the process of finding these prisons, is there somewhere in particular that you want to go and visit and like offer the world insights on what it's like inside there that you've just not managed to uh, sign off on yet? Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd like to go to the Caribbean, Jamaica, you yeah. know, the, the, the Caribbean islands. I'd like to go to Eastern 
um, the, the Middle East, for example, um, yep. Turkey, places like that where there are lots of questions about the treatment of prisoners, um, Japan, you, you know, some of the more... Oh, wow, that would places. be a really interesting one. Yeah. Actually, Are there any that have just said no straight up? Turkey not? said no, a lot of European, UK, yeah. you, you, you know. Really? I, I've made documentaries in British prisons, one mm-hmm. hour pieces for Panorama and that. They wouldn't let me go in there for seven days because they want to micromanage. So they would invite me, the UK prison service would invite me in to make a documentary, but they would want to micromanage what I do, who I see, where I go, oh, okay. and I'm just not buying it. You would that. lose the whole organic lose feel the of the show. Of it. I'm just not going to do that. So. And do you, do you think some of the prisoners might have loosened up after, obviously, it's in seven seasons now? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I have been approached quite recently by prison directors who have invited me to their prisons because they've watched the Netflix show. And even though sometimes, you know, we, you know, expose the the horrible conditions, we do it, I think, in a responsible way, where if something's dirty, I'm kind of reacting in my kind of Western way. Um, So we have been invited to prisons by the directors of prisons or governments to come and have a look at their, like Lebanon at the moment are inviting me over, a prison in South Africa, another one in Germany have asked me if I would come to their prisons. Mm. But I'm not just going to go to any prison. It has to be, you know, tick our criteria, maximum security prison, for example, you know, a place where there is challenges um, both for and against the the prison service. We're not just going in there as a propaganda machine. Yeah, And and just to sort of you know round things up i guess is it, it is there a prison that you've been to that you've gone they they've got this right or this if i was to create a prison this this is how i i would run it i guess um is there something you've looked at and you've been just genuinely impressed yeah i i think the first one and i didn't even know these kind of environments existed was in norway so when we started this series it was kind of the south american type conditions are appalling it's menacing it's frightening mm. And then we is it, went. Is this the one where they got their own houses or something? Because I, I think they I don't have their own houses, like but they have like the, very like the Howden prison in Norway was built where there's no bars. There's just big glass, you know, reinforced glass windows, and they have pine trees outside the cells. So the aesthetics of this particular prison is appealing. You know, right. you'd live there if it wasn't a prison. Okay, um, but they built it deliberately, and they have workshops in these prisons. That will make workshops out. So, you know, car manufacturing places look silly because they have everything in these prisons. So when I went to the Norwegian prison... Oh, what is inside their workforce is literally... Inside the prison. prison. So inside the prison, they have like mechanics dirt where they have BMW cars coming in and they oh, wow. to be... So the from the general public. And Sorry? The, is that from the general public and the prisoners... The prisoners work in there for BMW. So BMW built a factory. I think it's BMW oh, own wow. the factory or, yeah. or the mechanicals and the prisoners work on it. So they're learning skills. They're doing real car practices and they, they, they replicate that in woodwork and, and other places. So Norway have built their prison deliberately to rehabilitate prisoners and their recidivism rate, i.e. reoffending rate, is better than anywhere in the world until I went to Cyprus. So I thought the Norwegian prison was the most humane prison I'd ever been to in this series or even in my own time. And then I did an episode in the last season in Cyprus where the director of that particular institution treated the prisoners with a humanity that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. And in return, they treated the prison with humanity. So the prisoners, there were no drugs. I've never been to a prison where there's no drugs. And I genuinely believe that in Cyprus, there were no drugs in the prison. The prisoners running into the corner, smoking a smith, doing a little yeah. heroin. There was zero drugs in this prison. And I spoke to a lot of guys off camera trying to discover whether there was a little bit here and there. And I generally get to the truth at some point, but I honestly believe there was no drugs in the Cypriot prison. So Norway, Greenland, 
Cyprus, more humane than anywhere I've been to. And they get it right because they do what I think is two things. They treat prisoners with humanity. So forget what the crime they're in for. They're in prison and they're being punished. And then they reallocate the resources, something we don't do cleverly enough in this country. So they don't ask for more money to do a better job. They just reallocate the resources and spend it in the areas where they think they can make a difference. And it's what we all want, right? We don't want people going in prison whether they're a relative or an enemy and coming out and continuing to do what they do. And so those places get it right because they do it right. those places are seeing the best results, you said, as well. Definitely. Cyprus recidivism rates, you know, below 20%. In Norway, 20%. We are 60%, 70% in this country. And what's stopping us from looking at these prisons, looking at these countries, the way they operate their prisons and going, well, look, the results are there. Why are we not kind of moving into that? I, 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 from what I've been told, at least in the US, it is a very profit-driven yeah. um, system. But over in the UK, is, is that is that still the case? Because it's it's the government that that run these prisons, or are we have privately? a handful of private prisons in okay. this country that are run by you know private companies, G4S okay. or whatever. But the majority are state-run prisons. But you, you know, I don't know the answer. But what I do know is, um, if it worked. How would they make you scared Hmm. so that you conform and and behave? And that's not me going on a conspiracy tip. It's just like if you don't fear um, criminality, if you don't fear prison, if you don't fear crime, how are they going to control you and tell you? You know, every headline is about the escapee prisoner who's the dangerous. There's 80,000 prisoners in prison attempting to escape probably all the time. One gets out and that's the headlines. You know, somebody gets out of prison after serving a life sentence and commits another crime. That's the headlines. Not the 30,000 that were released and went on to lead law-abiding lives. So it's about the fear factor. Because I genuinely believe, like you do, that if we reallocated the resources in this country to really reduce reoffending, it could be done. There are lots of organisations and charities out there, including my own, that are trying to do positive work that can reduce reoffending, but they don't buy into it. Mm. And it's going to be some time, maybe. Yeah. I don't think it'll ever. If ever, yeah. I mean, we have a population of, what, 70 million? We have a prison population of 80,000. You're telling me we can't... And most of them have mental health issues, so they shouldn't be in prison in the first place. A lot of them have drug dependency, alcohol dependency problems. That can be addressed, given the right resources to address those problems. But they don't. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Really appreciate it. Um it is definitely been one of the most eye-opening podcasts that yes. we've done. And also, the, but my fear is still very much still what it was before. You haven't helped alleviate that. It's still, I'm still terrified. Well, I'm here to tell the tower. Yes. That should say something. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, but yeah, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, Yeah, no, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, the show, which is out now, you guys can check it out. We spoke about a few of the prisons that, that you went to went to see. Is, it, is there one episode... That if if you someone that hasn't seen any of these before that you're there on any of the seasons, it's like this is the one. Give that a watch and you'll get suckered in. Yeah, it depends what you want to see. If you want to okay. see a serial killer, Ukraine. If you want to right. see poor conditions, it's Paraguay. If you want to see humanity, it's Norway or or Cyprus. So yeah. there's a little bit in there for everyone. You know, different cultures do yeah. things differently. So a little bit of everything. I think. Yeah. And you brought your book with you. Got yes. a book out. Yes. This, this is for you two guys. Oh, oh amazing. thank you. Very I didn't much. realize there was two of you. I should have. But you can <laughs> right. I'll read the first page. You read the second. <laughs> And I'll go third, I'll fourth. Read it and to we'll you. But look, I mean, that took me 20 years to write. Not literally, but I, I, I wrote my book because people asked me, where did I get the scar on my left hand, 
you know, left hand yeah. side of my cheek. Yeah. You know, what was it like in prison? It's all in there. If people amazing, because I get asked those questions all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wrote a book. I brought that in for you. Notorious. Amazing. Thank you very much. Well, we're yeah, actually in the, we're, we're in the process right now of something called seventy five hard, and one of the the things that we have to do every day is read 10 pages of a book this is sort this sort of for our next one go. so i really appreciate yeah, it but yeah that. like i said thank you very much for coming on guys if you haven't already then make sure you follow the podcast check Raphael out on all the platforms that will be in the show notes and until next time guys we'll see you later Bye-bye. bye bye